Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, May 8th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a court filing seeks to block a law to create a state-operated court system in Jackson. Then, a decades-old project to build flood mitigation pumps in the Delta is moving forward, despite objections from ecology groups. Plus, we sit down with Mississippi's outgoing Speaker of the House to discuss his time in public office. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi courts have issued a stay for House Bill 1020, temporarily preventing the law from taking effect. Several lawsuits have been filed against the bill, with opponents claiming it would undermine the voting power of Jackson and Hines County residents. It would create a state-operated court with appointed judges, while all other judicial leaders are elected in Mississippi. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Attorney Joe Schottenfeld, Assistant General Counsel with the NAACP, one of the parties filing to block HB 1020. The state court judge, Judge Thomas, issued a very temporary stay for 10 days, preventing HB 1020 from going into effect um, and effectively preventing uh, Chief Justice Randolph and all of the uh, employees or administrators of the state court system from going forward with uh, HB 1020's requirement that the Chief Justice appoint four temporary judges to the Seventh Circuit. And um, And because the statute is now not in effect for this short amount of time, at least, um, there wasn't the same urgency necessarily to have the hearing today that we were supposed to have in the federal court context. Um, There's just a little bit more time for uh, the state court to consider the merits of the briefing there um, and at the same time for Judge Wingate, the federal judge, uh, to take up the temporary restraining order that we filed last week which would have similarly prohibited the statute from going into effect and the chief justice from appointing these temporary unelected judges. What does this mean for when you guys will be able to pick back up with your side of hearings? Could it be weeks? Should we see this after the 10-day injunction? What is the timeline looking like for you guys now? We're we're not sure. Uh, A lot of that will depend on what Judge Thomas decides in the Chancery Court. Uh, He set a hearing date for next Wednesday, on the state court case challenging HB 1020 on Mississippi constitutional grounds. Um, And we expect to have further information on the exact timing 
uh, with respect to our case in the federal court after Judge Thomas weighs in. Did you guys know this injunction was possibly coming? Had you guys been planning for this to be a potential? Uh, were you guys aware that this may be a thing? Uh, yes, definitely. We, we, you know, we'd seen uh, the terrific briefing in the state court case by the plaintiffs there, um, and we're certainly aware yesterday that there was going to be a hearing before Judge Thomas. Um, I think it was, you know, up until he uh, ruled from the bench and said what he was going to do, that there is definitely an open question of exactly what the outcome would be. Does this 10-day injunction change the plans that maybe your team or both teams, even Reeves' teams, had at attacking this issue? You know, I think the only difference is really the timeline. My expectation is that all parties in all cases are going to be moving forward as swiftly as possible to fully brief all the issues and make sure that the judges in both cases have all the arguments before them effectively. By its terms, the injunction and stay that Judge Thomas entered is very temporary, and it's really only designed to preserve the rights of the parties until after he's had the hearing and then had a chance before May 14th um, to either decide to enter a preliminary injunction that would be more permanent or to lift it. Um, What we were seeking in the federal court with respect to our temporary restraining order was similarly an opportunity to preserve the rights of Jackson's residents prior to having that appointment um, and to make sure that Judge Wingate had an opportunity to look at the papers, have a hearing, and then rule on that temporary restraining order before the appointments went into effect. So in short, not much of a change, just a little bit more time for this to unfold. And can you educate our listeners on why the case is against Governor Reeves, why he is listed as the defendant and maybe not the state of Mississippi? Federal law and and sovereign immunity prevent us from suing the state directly. However, under relevant federal statutory and constitutional doctrines, we are able to sue state officials in their official capacity who are tasked with enforcing the law. Um, So the 11th Amendment, the federal constitution, and some of the statutes that implement those and allow for lawsuits have created a little bit of a fiction so as to make sure that you can still effectuate the 14th Amendment's commands with respect to equal protection and other constitutional protections against the states, um, so that even though you can't sue the state directly, you can sue its officers when they are moving to implement um, an unconstitutional action. Remind us what these unconstitutional actions are and what's going to be some of those big attacking points when we see you guys uh, resume court hearings. Our lawsuit alleges that HB 1020 and SB 2343 uh, violate the Equal Protection Clause uh, on a number of grounds. Uh, First, we've alleged in our complaint that the judicial appointment provision in 10B 1020 um, targets Jackson's residents uh, on account of their race with four unelected, quote-unquote, temporary appointed judges um, who will deprive them of their right to vote. Um, The second is with respect to the creation of the CCID court, prosecuting attorneys. Uh, Again, much like the challenge to the appointed judges, um, that's the creation uh, of an unelected court system with unelected prosecutors that we allege is being done on account of the race of Jackson's residents and their elected leadership um, and is as a result depriving them of their ability to elect the judges who oversee them. Um, And then the last equal protection clause is a challenge to SB 2343's expansion of the jurisdiction of the Capitol Police, um, which again, there's no other place in Mississippi that has such a strange policing structure. um, And we argue that 
that that's being done, uh, again, to deprive Jackson's residents of the ability to exercise the accountability and electoral control that they might otherwise have over the law enforcement who police them. Um, so what you're seeing at this point in the case is a, a set of intertwined equal protection clause challenges um, to the heart of the provisions in HB 1020 and SB 2343. Attorney Joe Schoutenfeld is with the NAACP. Coming up, a project to alleviate flooding in the Delta is gaining momentum, but ecologists say it could endanger the state's wetlands. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Farmlands in the Mississippi Delta face a continued risk of flooding, and a project proposed around half a decade ago could alleviate some of the issues. But conservation groups say this plan is flawed and would destroy a significant part of Yazoo wetlands. Now federal engineers are considering the proposal again. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Jill Mastro Totero, Mississippi's policy director for Audubon Delta, about how the Yazoo backwater pumps could affect Mississippi and beyond. The project has been uh, back on the front burner due to a lot of political pressure um, that's been put on the current administration. Um, what's so deeply dis- disturbing to Audubon is that just 14 months after the Biden administration restored the, the federal protections to protect the hemispherically important area, they've now signaled that they're going to propose a plan that abdicates the conservation, climate, and environmental justice commitments that the Biden administration has spoken to. And by putting the veto Diazu pumps back on the table, we know that the project is and continues to be an ag drainage project masquerading as, as flood control that will only serve to destroy uh, tens of thousands of acres of ecologically important wetlands, globally important wetlands, while communities continue to flood. So the Corps' announcement really doubles down on what that agency has admitted all along, um, and they won't protect communities from flooding. In fact, they have put forward this current iteration based on planting seasons, and there was very little details on uh, how people were in the community were going to be protected. In fact, they only acknowledged that about 24 primary homes, occupied homes, would be impacted by the proposal. So really, we, we recognize that there's a better path forward, that there are many federal programs through FEMA and USDA to elevate homes and roads and USDA conservation programs to work with farmers um, to replant their farmland back to wetlands, all that help local communities 
address their, their flooding issues. And those are the types of programs that we know are employed in communities across the country very successfully, and they have a lot of money behind them. This administration has really invested in those kinds of priorities, and we want to see those investments touch down on the ground to the communities of the Yazoo backwater that will only continue to flood with the Yazoo pumps. We want to get this money on the ground to the people who need it the most. Could you speak in some detail about the wetlands that would be affected if the project were to go forward? So the Yazoo backwater is one of the few remaining intact uh, bottomland hardwood wetlands in the lower Mississippi River Alluvial Valley. Uh, It's a critical part of the Mississippi Flyway and Audubon um, migratory uh, analysis has determined that nearly 29 million migrating birds and waterfowl depend on the wetlands of the Yazoo backwater every year when they fly north and south. Some of these bird species fly as far away as South America. Um, We know that uh, these wetlands support 450 different types of of birds and wildlife and fish, Um, and they're a really important part of economy of the state, helping to support over $2 billion a year in outdoor recreational tourism, so hunting and fishing and bird watching. It's such a special place that the George W. Bush Environmental Protection Agency in 2008 used its rare authority to protect this area under the Clean Water Act, one of 14 Clean Water Act vetoes, vetoes ever issued in the history of that law. And what the Biden administration did just 14 months ago was reinstate those veto protections for the Yazoo backwater. The Trump administration had unlawfully pulled the veto. And so our position has always been uh, to ensure that this hemispherically important area, these wetlands and the wildlife that depend on them, remain protected for this and future generations, but at the same time to ensure that true effective flood relief is delivered to the backwater communities. And so after the Biden administration in 2021 upheld the EPA's veto from 2008, what do you think changed in the two years since then that's now allowing the project to move forward? I think there has been a tremendous amount of political pressure put on the Biden administration, get the pumps back in some way, shape, or form. The draft proposal by the Corps um, and the other federal agencies um, is very thin on on details, but it is very evident that because it's front and center um, based around agriculture and planting seasons, that's how the pump operations were described, in in this draft proposal that clearly um, ag interests have had a significant role in getting the administration's attention. One of the interesting things I heard at one of the community meetings held yesterday by a number of, um, from the farming community that have been large proponents of the pumps is that they weren't pleased with the pumping regime uh, that was was proposed by the Corps. Um, In fact, they said they needed you know, bigger pumps alluding to that more water needed to be pulled off. So 
they're themselves acknowledging that the flooding is going to continue to occur on their ag lands. Jill Mastro Tatero is with the Audubon Delta, a conservation group that opposes the Yazoo Backwater Pump Project. Coming up, Mississippi's Speaker of the House discusses his time in public office. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi Speaker of the House, Philip Gunn, is ending his time in the State House. He has served as a representative for the city of Clinton since 2004 and acted as Speaker for the past 12 years. In the first of a three part interview, he speaks with our Kobe Vance about his time in office. Well, I think every politician wants to think that they make a difference between the time they start and the time they end. I hope every politician does. I think that's the reason we're called to serve is to try to make Mississippi a better place, whether you're on a city council or in state government or a school board official or whatever. I think you want to make sure that uh, you leave things better than you found them. My uh, things that I would point to, probably the most significant changes that were made, I guess first and foremost would be the bill that overturned Roe versus Wade. I don't know that any of the members of the House of Representatives will do anything bigger or greater in their political lives than making an impact like that, not only a national impact, but a potentially international impact. Rarely does a state pass a bill or a law that has a national effect, but that one did. Little did we know back in 2018 when we passed that bill that it would be the one used to work its way up to the Supreme Court and overturn Roe versus Wade. So a lot of people may be under the misunderstanding that it outlawed abortion, and the Supreme Court did not outlaw abortion in that bill. But what they did do was say the decision regarding abortion is returned to the states. What that decision did was say that the decisions regarding abortion is returned to the states, which, in my opinion, is where it should have been all along. And we in Mississippi very, very much believe in the sanctity of human life and the protection of the unborn, and, and uh, therefore we, we passed a number of laws during my tenure that are pro-life measures. And so though returning a Roe versus Wade, I think, would be the, probably the number one issue. Other things that were significant, I think changing the state flag was significant. I think uh, the largest income tax cut in the history of the state, largest teacher pay raise was significant. We have seen the biggest gains in educational achievement in the last 12 years. I think that's huge. We've made a huge emphasis on fighting human trafficking, uh, made a huge emphasis on workforce development. I think all of those things work to improve Mississippi that we did. Another thing that comes to mind is improvements on infrastructure. We have put an enormous amount of money into our roads and bridges and water. So I think all of those things work to make Mississippi a better place for people to live and raise their families. I wanted to go back a little bit and just start off, what got you into politics in the first place? What could start your interest in joining the Mississippi legislature and then once here, getting into the role of the speaker? 
Well, I, I really had not set out to be in politics, and my involvement resulted from redistricting. As you know, we do a census every 10 years in this country, and as a result of those numbers, so we have to redraw those lines every 10 years to get us back within 25,000 each. And in, and in the year 2000, when that redistricting occurred, my hometown of Clinton got carved up badly the voting strength was diluted by the legislature back then, and I was approached by some of our city leaders and asked, had I ever considered running for the legislature? And I said, no. And they said, well, we need you to run because we don't have anybody in the legislature anymore. And I said, how long do I have to decide? They said, you got one week, qualifying deadlines a week from today. So I made a hasty decision and uh, decided to run and ended up winning. Unfortunately, my race ended up in a, an election contest, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court before it was ultimately decided, but I was declared the winner and uh, began serving. For eight years, I served in the legislature, and in 2011, I guess, we were finally able to gain a majority of Republicans in the House, only by three votes, but we did have the majority, and at that time was approached by a number of my House members who wanted me to run for Speaker. They felt like I would serve well in that role, and they were kind enough to support me, and I ended up uh, getting elected as the Speaker and have enjoyed that now for 12 years, and it's been one of the highest honors of my life to be selected by my House three times. And, and people may or may not know this, but the Speaker is elected by the members of the House. That's different than the lieutenant governor or the governor, which are elected by popular vote. We see that played out in Washington, where the Speaker is elected by the members of Congress. We saw that most recently when Kevin McCarthy tried to get elected, took like 15 or 16 ballots before he finally did. But the, the Speaker and the lieutenant governor serve the same roles here, but uh, the only difference is the speakers elected by the members of the House. So my members have elected me three times to that role. It's a high honor. I've been privileged to serve in that capacity. As you've moved through your time in office, what have been some of the things that you've seen change, uh, whether it be with the legislative body or with the state of Mississippi as a whole? Well, I, I, I would like to think that the harmony within my own chamber is better today than, than it was when I started. Back in... 2012, when I was first elected Speaker, there was a, a great shift in the politics of Mississippi at that time. The Democrats had been in control of the House for 136 years, and then overnight they were no longer in control. And we had some of the members who are no longer here now, but back then they were here, and they did not like that. They uh, were very disruptive. They set out to try to cause Republicans to fail, and it was a real challenge back then trying to not only figure out how to be speaker and understand the rules and make sure that legislation got processed and moved forward and fight off the uh, political attacks that so many of them chose to, to wage. I think most all of those people uh, are gone today, and what we have now is, I believe, uh, a harmonious relationship within our body. That does not mean we don't have intense debates or heated debates or that there's disagreement on a lot of fronts, but what it does mean is that I think people conduct themselves professionally with decorum. I've made sure that that takes place within the chamber, and we have debates and disagreements and fights, but we do it in a uh, respectful manner. So 
that's one thing I see in the House chamber. Now, out in the state, I see us uh, with a wide variety of views on the issues. We have uh, a lot of different ideas out there among our voting populace, and the polling shows, I was looking at some polling just this morning, that shows a great divergence between Republicans and Democrats on the issues. The top issue for Republicans in one of the polls I looked at is family values, protecting the family unit, making sure our families are strong. Sadly, it was the last thing on the Democrat list. Uh, jobs in the economy were on the Republican list. It was not as high on the Democrat list. So we have some differences of opinion, I think, as to how to move the state forward what is best for the state, what are the issues we should be focused on. It seems like Republicans and Democrats disagree uh, more so than they ever did on what the issues are. I think that is multiplied on a national level. From, of course, all I know is what I see on television, read the newspaper like everybody else. But it does appear that nationally we're seeing more of a disagreement on the issues and what the problems are and how to address the problems. I think we need leaders to stand up, rise up, who can bring both sides together and find common ground, and let's work on the things that we agree on and get those accomplished first, and then let's worry about the things that we can't agree on. Join us again tomorrow as Speaker Gunn shares the steps it took to bridge the racial and political divide. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.